This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Hey, welcome to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM's 132. I'm Nick Ashburn. And I'm Cheryl Cooley. And we join you here live every Thursday morning from 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern. We are replayed throughout the week, and you can find us on demand on the Sirius XM app, so you never have to be without us. <laughs> Uh, so our first guest who, jo- who will join us in just a moment is legendary investor Jeremy Grantham. Jeremy is currently the chief investment strategist and chairman of the board at GMO. Uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about climate change and how investments and entrepreneurship and innovation is is tackling that. And I think I think we're going to get a little spicy. So, so Jeremy, I know you're listening in. We're just <laughs> fair warning. So without further ado, let's uh, welcome Jeremy Grantham, Chief Investment Strategist and Chairman of the Board at GMO to the show. Welcome to the show, Jeremy. Hi. Jeremy, you are, you know, you are really, really well known in the investment community, but our audience kind of spans, you know, the investment community, entrepreneurs, nonprofit leaders. So can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your story? Uh, yeah, I came over here to uh, business school. Decided to a little place called Harvard, a, I think. Yeah, in uh, 64, 1964. Decided to stay a couple of years to uh, make some money and and go home and use it, and then a couple more years, and uh, pretty soon um, I was 80 years old. <laughs> Flash forward a little bit, and you're 80. And so you know you have clearly been a very successful investor with GMO, and um, you started your foundation though in 1997. What really was the impetus for that? Well, I was kind of surprised to find I'd been making some decent money. Um, that was because we we got into the investment business back in the day when it was easy. You could show up. Uh, there wasn't a lot of talent around, and decent original ideas were lying lying around, um, very much unlike today's super competitive situation. Mm-hmm. So in any case, it, things went well. We made a lot of money. And pretty soon, sensible people say, well, you have enough. What are you going to do with it? And uh, we had a fairly decent relationship uh, with nature, if you will. We took some good trips. And so we said, what are, what are the most pressing needs? And we talked to the NGOs, and we started out with trying to protect birds on their migration through Costa Rica and Panama because they all migrate through there. So every darn bird practically on the two subcontinents pass through that little narrow channel. And and that seemed to us about the highest leveraged uh, investment we could make. And very quickly, after about two or three years, we began to realize that climate not only threatened the birds, but the insects and everything else right up to and including us. And and we fairly quickly transferred our attention and our focus, and we found ourselves thinking from then on, what are the biggest threats to the well-being of, of our society going forward uh, on a global basis? And what are the least understood? And climate pretty well checked all the boxes back 20 years ago. And, and, uh, and, and so we said, well... We can't afford the science, but what we can afford is we can afford some communication. So half our money then and now 
goes to trying to get the word out in every way we possibly can to politicians and the general public that this is a threat to our existence over, I used to think, 100 years back then, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And now it's become painfully obvious that the time horizon is, is more like much, 50. Much narrower. And so... In your professional and investment experience, you were credited with sort of predicting um, the the sort of the 2000 tech bubble as well as the 2008 financial crisis. So you, you did very well for your investors. Um, right now, you're predicting something else. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, we're, of course, predicting that um, if unaddressed, that climate will become the uh, overwhelmingly dominant investment issue uh, as far as the eye can see um, into the distant future. The weather has deteriorated far faster than any of us thought 20 years ago, uh, the climate, I should say, and uh, the damage it's doing really hits the front page uh, more and more. Obviously, the dreadful fires in California, 20 uh, 17, they had five of the 20 worst fires in their history, and they burnt the most forest uh, ever, and 2018 uh, beat beat that. And when that kind of world record happens back to back, rather like the flooding in Houston, where over five years they had three in excess of 100-year floods, you want to to start redrawing your vision of, of the probabilities. Well, and, and Jeremy, on one hand, like you have, I, I mean, I'm Cheryl, you probably have some experience with this. I mean, just observationally, mm-hmm. you know, crazy fires, crazy floods. We're having stronger winter storms where, you know, I think hopefully we're in the springtime here in Philadelphia, but stronger winter storms across the country. Fewer fireflies and lightning bugs. Yeah. You know. So, um, you know, I hope that our listeners are able to sort of say like, yeah, things are, I, I am noticing a difference. So is there, is there an optimism side of this? Are there technologies and investments and uh, inventions yeah. that are you know, we, bring we broad online? Sorry, we, we phrase it as the race of our lives because we're so impressed by the technologies that are attempting to race to the rescue. Mm-hmm. I don't think any of my gloomy environmental friends, or almost none of them, are aware of of the absolute ferment of, of uh, science and innovation that's going on on the green, on the green side. So can, sort of and, from the scientific community, they're, they're maybe not as aware of, like, the, the exciting innovations that are happening? Is that – I just want to make sure that yeah, we're getting that. Uh, that's right. The environmentalists uh, don't realize how quickly the improvements are occurring and, and what potentials are lying in the wings. Can you give us – If any... we had a carbon tax, incidentally, oh. it would – it would spur on armies of uh, entrepreneurs and, and scientists. They just can't make the bet that there will be a carbon tax. So they have endless uh, interesting lines of research that they're holding back on. Mm. So can you give us an example of, of a, a recent innovation that is a cause for optimism for you? The, the speed of the drop in the cost of wind mm. and solar have really for 20 years constantly uh, been a surprise. And if you see, even even the oil companies will make estimates of, of, of these things, and year after year they have to, they have to change them. 
in, in favor of, of solar and wind. And uh, battery storage was always considered the, the laggard. But in, uh, in 2010, which is like yesterday, um, Tesla needed $1,000 for a kilowatt hour in their machines, and, and now it's 150 And that's less than nine years yeah. to drop it down to 15 cents on the dollar. And, and that's going to continue. Indeed, we, we invest 20% of our principal in, in green technology, all, all of it venture capital. Mm-hmm. And, and we have a, a major investment in a solid-state lithium-ion uh, battery that's been delivered to a major international automobile company, VW to be precise. And, and it's half the weight and uh, half the volume charges in maximum 15 minutes. So just imagine a telephone that instead of carrying one day, carries two days charge. And instead of waiting three hours, uh, waits five, 10 or 15 minutes. And, and you realize what a knockout blow that is to competition. Or imagine a Model 3. I got mine last November, a Model 3 Tesla. With this battery, it would weigh 500 pounds less. Mm-hmm. Two, two handsomely overweight people on the back seat disappear. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. And I, I want to remind our listeners that you're listening to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. And we're speaking with Jeremy Grantham, Chief Investment Strategist and Chairman of the Board of GMO. But we are talking about um, climate change and how this is a huge issue for investors, for companies, for our planet, of course. And and Jeremy, you're, we're talking about energy and sort of the innovations happening in the energy space, batteries, Um I was reading an article that you were um, quoted in, in, I think, in Bloomberg, and you talked also about agriculture as being one of the the causes of this. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, well, agriculture is a big input into climate change and the emission of uh, greenhouse gases, but it also works the other the other way around. And climate change is really damaging agriculture, mm-hmm. so it's a, a rather vicious cycle. And the worst place and the one we should worry about for the next decade and and beyond is, is Africa. Mm-hmm. Africa obviously has the worst governance. It has quite a few failing states already. The population has multiplied by at least five times in my lifetime. And it's the one place where the population is still soaring, still have five children each in Nigeria and so on. And... Uh, they're going to have just massive problems of feeding their growing population. The UN says by 2100 they'll have 3 billion more Africans and the rest of the world will be probably down a bit. So it really is a problem unique or almost unique to Africa. And climate change bears very heavily on them. They have a big chunk of, of Africa that is expected to continue to dry out and have hotter weather with, with bad consequences on productivity. They also have the worst soils uh, of any continent uh, outside Antarctica. So n- nothing is going right for them. And what this will mean and has already started to mean is that there will be immigration. And we've seen what damage to European liberal traditions has occurred in the last three years uh, from a few hundred thousand refugees uh, a year 
and we're, we're talking about a potential few hundred million. Um, the recent polls in Africa indicate about 50% of the entire population would be very happy to emigrate if it could. Well, and Jeremy, wow. it's yeah. interesting because I cannot remember who we had on this show, but um, we were we were talking. Oh, I think it was a Wharton professor actually in legal studies, um, business and legal studies and business yeah. business yes, ethics, who is doing research on these types of migration immigration issues based mm-hmm. on climate change, and that. But her her research actually is from a national security perspective. Sarah Light. Sarah Light. That's right. Um, here at Wharton. And she, I think her hypothesis is that the investment and business community needs to get their heads around this as right, well. Right. Um, and I think that's sort of what you're talking about, too, broadly, right? But, right. That tied to government to national security as a result of these kinds of climate changes is, yes, I, I, is interesting. I don't, I don't see this as primarily a business opportunity. In fact, I think the West writ large is going to let Africa get on with it. They're, they're not going to make a determined effort uh, to... Uh, bail them out or, or, head, or head this off. Indeed, you can't. The biggest problem is rapid population growth. Indeed, you can't even mention that in polite circles. But, you know, otherwise you'd be a colonialist, you know, uh, viper. <laughs> so it, it's, a, it's a problem that's very difficult to, uh, to help out on. And then dumping food has been proven over and over again to be negative to the local farmers. Right, right. So it's not eat. It's not easy to work out how you would how would you defuse this issue. So, I see that as a, a, a problem absolutely of of uh, global security. And I know for a fact that the military of of the UK and 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 the US and China are all concerned with it. There is, by the way, <clears throat> and I won't bore you in the details, but you can't grow any food without phosphorus, uh, phosphate, and uh, Every living thing, including us, needs uh, needs phosphorus, and uh, it, in fact, it's lim- the limiting factor uh, in 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 the uh, universe. Uh, a chronic shortage of phosphorus, which is needed for any any kind of life. Anyway, seventy five percent of all the world's high grade phosphorus is in Morocco, and without Morocco, we barely have fifty years. And if you wanted to grow. Uh, you have more like 35. So you can imagine what the risk would be if Morocco was, let's say, taken over by ISIS, the militaries of all of of the major powers would be engaged. Yeah. Just can't afford that to happen. So just file that away at the back of your mind. I mean, it's super interesting because, like, I did not know that. I did not know it either. And, and so our listeners out there, you know, I, it, it seems like these issues are way down the road. Right. On one hand, and also so far away, if we're talking about Morocco or overpopulation in Africa, like that seems far away, too. But all of a sudden something in Morocco happens and it's all of the big, uh, big countries getting involved from a military perspective. That that's huge. And that's a game changer. Yeah. Well, and and the- people people don't realize that all, when you're flying over the Midwest, all those tens of millions of acres, they they scatter mined phosphate on all of it. In other words, they dig it up from mines far away, they ship it to the Midwest, and they scatter it on those fields. And and in the technology of big ag, uh, it is absolutely essential. You can't grow your crops without it. So we are utterly dependent on a finite mined uh, fertilizer. 
and not just one, because you also need potassium. It is also a limiting factor along with water and soil uh, in the growing of crops, and we mine that. And it should make anyone's back of the hair bristle a little to think that we are utterly dependent on a limited, finite resource that we mine and ship around the world and scatter on our fields in order to produce the food that we produce. It, it is not making my morning um, positive. <laughs> I'm, I'm sort of kind of processing this and trying to sort of say, what's, if it's a limited resource, what's the solution? The, the, the solution is you have to go to organic farming in the end because we are blessed. Obviously, the, the planet was green and, and lush and successful before humans appeared. And we're blessed with the fact that the bedrock on which all this sits contains both potassium and phosphorus and just enough to, you know, maintain a, a lovely green planet. But you have to uh, facilitate it, nurture the soil, and, and make these things plant-friendly, which in the massive scale and the urgency of squeezing every last drop out, we do not do. In fact, right. we do quite the reverse. We sterilize the soil. We poison it to death and then start from scratch, put on the, the mined fertilizers and lots of nitrogen and, um, and lots of pesticide and herbicide and it making it incredibly artificial with dire long-term consequences, not the least being that one way or another we have killed off all our, not all our insects, but about 75% of the flying insects have gone missing. And anyone who lives in the countryside and, and who's over the age of 40 or 50 can remember when their flower gardens were just covered in insects. And now I can go out and irritate my wife by counting the number of bumblebees that we have in our flower garden. And I'll come back and say there's four today. I mean, there used wow. to be four on a flower. Yeah. And th this impeccable German study of two years ago uh, where this great club of amateurs, they all have PhDs, but they call themselves amateurs in Germany. And uh, they go out and they measure very, very precisely uh, the, the volume of flying insects in these German forest preserves. And, and in 30 tiny little years, 75% of the sheer volume have gone missing in 63 forest preserves, not around the refinery, but in the forest preserves of a fairly rural part of Germany, they are missing 75% of all their flying insects. As if that was not enough, this summer there was a Puerto Rican study that went back and did a very careful comparison with 30 years earlier in, in the oldest protected uh, tropical forest in Puerto Rico, protected originally by the King of Spain, and they found that 75% of their flying insects at least had gone missing, and, and the birds that ate them, the insect-eating birds, were down by 90%, and the fruit-eating birds were down by 5%. So it was all very consistent. Both pretty good studies, but the German study is impeccable. Yeah, so, Jeremy, you, you, you opened the show by saying in your foundation you you couldn't really fund all the science, so part of what you wanted to do was, was fund knowledge and information. How How do you think we need to do a better job of getting this information out in a way that... Um, doesn't doesn't just terrify people, but makes them understand 
the the importance and maybe the opportunities as well. Because if it's too terrifying, they're going to just shut it off and crawl under a rock someplace. What's your strategy for um, providing for motivating smart action on these issues? Yeah, it, it is actually said everywhere that you mustn't you mustn't be pessimistic. You mustn't uh, terrify people. Um, my 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 feeling actually. Uh, the analogy would be that you're being chased by a lion and there are some trees not too far away. And if you use the rock cover and move quickly and use your brain, you might very well get to the trees and, and safety. And the idea that you would just kind of lie down and try and forget the lion seems to be ridiculous. So I, I, I think a certain amount of unpleasant news about the threats that we face uh, can be handled uh, by a lot of people. On the other hand, <clears throat> I, have to ad- I have to admit I'm amazed by <clears throat> what dire <clears throat> news can, can uh, float into the uh, ether and, and, and be ignored. We, we have a wonderful ability, both in the press and, and as the general public, to ignore unpleasantness because... Lurking beyond the loss of insects, uh, which I think is caused by chemical warfare, is something much more personal that is ignored perhaps even more comprehensively than climate change. And that is what is happening to humans. Uh, About 65% of the sperm count in the developed world has, has gone missing from males since before World War II. 65% 65% does not strike me as a small number. Hey, when and I, I feel like if you, you start talking about <laughs> uh, male virility, then that gets uh, the, this is the a, men po- you uh, motivated. Think, you would think this would be motivating, but it's been publicly available information for a year, and the uh, main professor concerned went on 60 Minutes, et cetera, et cetera, a year ago when her meta-study came out of 200 surveys. There is no doubt about this, but... It's still declining 1% a year, as are miscarriages, by the way, and, and, quote, shows absolutely no sign of slowing down, which means come back in 20 years, and it might be 80%. And at 80%, nature has built in a lot of redundancy here, by the way. So it may be that zero to 60, losing the first 65%, it's not the end of the world. Causes a little problem to some people, but not that big a deal. Going to, from 65 to 80 may be 10 times the difficulty. People I, are I'm, I'm not having, sure. I'm having visions of The Handmaid's Tale, and I'm not sure I'm, I'm as comfortable with, with that. <laughs> and, um, and let me point out, every developed country is way below replacement 2.1. Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. The U.S. just reported 1.76, the lowest of any year except for one year at the depth of of the depression. That's 15% below replacement. In Japan, it's 1.4, and their population is, is declining fairly rapidly. So we have this paradox of people where in Africa, <clears throat> kind of where, where they, they aren't start the very early and don't have the chemical exposure that we have, although they have some, they are, according to the UN, threatening us threatening us, threatening themselves with 3 billion extra mouths to feed. And simultaneously, in the developed world, 
we're losing population at a rate that will make economics as traditionally viewed uh, very difficult, very complicated, and and um, at least for a transitional period, uh, discouraging. So, Jeremy, I, I think as we sort of start wrapping up this segment, I, I have a couple of questions. One is... It seems like, I mean, from our perspective at the Wharton School, we do see an industry amongst our students and even with some faculty, the conversation's changing. Mm -hmm. Um, People Mm -hmm. more interested in how to, you know, invest, create products or create um, investment products, but also companies that address these issues. And I think that um, you might have been relatively recently successful at GMO of of maybe convincing your colleagues to to create some products that start addressing yeah. these issues too. How has the conversation changed uh, over the last, I don't know, five, ten years for you, and what, do you, what still needs to happen? Yes. Um, very, very little changed from the late 90s all the way through until the recent presidential election. And then the scientists perceived correctly, one would have to say, that they were under attack and began to uh, uh, stiffen their backbones. This was particularly noticeable in the second half of last year, where a series of reports came out, one from the UN on one and a half degrees, much more outspoken and to the point. And then NASA and other U.S. institutions put out a formal report, very hard hitting, put out on Black Friday to cover it up, we believe, but it played very well anyway. And a series of peer-reviewed articles in the leading journals like Nature and Science, bang, bang, bang. Now, my only contribution to serious journals is I got a commentary into Nature, which is generally considered the number one mm-hmm. science uh, uh, journal, and um, about six years ago. And it was called Be Persuasive, Be Brave, Be Arrested if Necessary. <laughs> and it was a harangue at the rather wimpy climate scientists, none of whom were saying what they honestly believed. And you could not have said that last year. They were honestly saying they were quite straightforwardly saying what they honestly believed. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it all took place against the backdrop of that terrible fires that went on and on as all these reports came out. And, and, and the impact of that was dramatic in that suddenly, instead of 63% recognizing the obvious that, that things are changing for the worse, it jumped, it jumped to 73. Uh, and... Uh, if, if you're trying to build a political constituency around denialists, to start with an audience of 37 is one thing. To start with 27 is quite another. And if it's 27 looking like in three years it will be 17, you know you're out of business. And as we speak, uh, a lot of Republicans who were in the denial business are, are caucusing and reshaping their policy and one by one, they're qualifying their stand. Yes, yes, there is climate change. Yes, we are responsible. But we must be careful about how we counterattack this and solve the problem without damaging the economy. And that's how rapidly it's moving. So this is really incredibly encouraging. And, and Jeremy, in the last... do the same on, on our sperm count and insect losses, uh, I would be happier. And in our last minute, you know, Maybe it's it's related to your, um, you know, your commentary in nature. You know, for our listeners, it's hard to understand at the individual level what how you might be better or how you might do diff- something differently. Recycling isn't the answer. So is there anything that you would le- have our listeners know or that you want them to know and, and how they can act in this way? For climate change and toxicity, it's all about scale. And when you talk about scale, it's about it's about government. I'm sorry. 
for uh, libertarians, but that's the way it is. You can only address these tragedies of the commons, the water pollution, air pollution, and soil erosion by, by dealing at scale with government uh, help. And so what you should do, uh, dear listener, is lobby like mad your local politicians. Get out there if necessary and wave a placard in their nose that this is serious, must be addressed, and they've got to get a carbon tax going to enlist all, all of the innovation and science that is ready to be enlisted if they're given half a chance. All right. Well, <laughs> I think that's a clear directive. Thank you so much for joining us. We've been speaking with Jeremy Grantham, chief investment strategist and legendary investor, chairman of the board at GMO. This is Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.